Hello, welcome to the Nagorno Karabakh miniseries, produced by Original Post Caucasus in collaboration with Eastern Dialogue. In today's episode, we're going to talk about media, more precisely about international media. We have seen an influx of journalists, foreign journalists, um, during the Nagorno-Karabakh war, and today we're going to talk about how international media approached and covered the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and war. Our speaker today is Neil Hauer, who is a Canadian freelance journalist, analyst and researcher writing on the North and South Caucasus. He has been living in the region for many years and he has been reporting on the ground from all over in Syria and Chechnya and he has been in the front lines of Nagorno-Karabakh war. His stories were published on CNN, Guardian, Foreign Policy and Al Jazeera. Neil, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you've been covering the South Caucasus for a very long time. What is the most fascinating thing about the region for you as a foreign journalist? I mean, I just the, 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 I, was, the, I got into the region many years ago, uh, basically in the, the middle of my undergrad degree, I guess, because I was always interested in the former Soviet Union, and then the Caucasus was basically the most interesting corner of the former Soviet Union. And I mean, it's just this intersection of the, the so much history, culture, um, diversity, different languages, and and societies going back thousands of years. And the the amount of diversity and the the amount of richness in such a, a fairly geographically small area uh, just captivated me. And then even after living here for now about, about three and a half years, uh, I'm not anywhere close to having seen everything I want to. So uh, yeah, it, the, just the it's a it's a region that keeps on giving from it, and that I find very intellectually stimulating in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> and you have covered a lot of wars in the region too. Yeah, I mean, this is actually my first war, like, covering on the ground, because I've never had the, the idea of being a war correspondent. Um, I'm just a Caucasus-focused journalist and researcher, and so I've done, uh, I mean, I, I travel to Chechnya about once a year in the North Caucasus, but that's largely sort of a post-war area now. And Syria, I write on analytically, so not have not traveled there, just write on uh, especially Russian foreign policy there. But when this, this conflict happened, of course, I had to... Uh, it was, this is the, the biggest, frankly, the biggest event in the, the Caucasus and since minimum 2008, the Russia-Georgia war. So, uh, of course, I had to come here and, and uh, it, there, there was no way I thought I could do it without covering it from the ground, from Karabakh, from Armenia. And yeah. So with you, there were a lot of journalists. Um, in fact, the ad hoc report from the Armenian Ombudsman says that there were around 390 journalists from 90 different countries. Um, and uh, more than 100 media outlets covering um, the conflict from the Armenian side. And yet we all had this feeling that a lot of international media outlets have overlooked the conflict in some way or misrepresented a lot of facts. Do you have any kind of explanation for this? Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, especially for, uh, I think in European media, it was fairly well covered. Although, of course, I don't follow local national media for a ton of countries and I did meet you know, for example, one Dutch journalist who came here um, only in mid-November after the ceasefire and said there base, she was basically the first Dutch journalist to come here. So I guess it didn't make it everywhere. But my sense was that in Europe, you know, the coverage was not so bad. It was uh, quite, it was fairly widespread, I think. But especially American media outlets were largely disinterested. Um, I mean, I, I tried to pitch pieces to a large number of Armenian, to American outlets, big ones that I've worked with before, and they just all passed. Um, there was no bandwidth to get anything 
in there uh, because of, well, A, it's the pandemic, it's COVID time, and B, is the U.S. election. So there was no bandwidth at all to get anything into U.S. coverage. And then even major U.S. outlets, I mean, CNN didn't send anyone here and didn't commission any reporting from the ground. Washington Post didn't send anyone here, didn't commission any reporting from the ground. And the, the coverage, the bandwidth for the U.S. media especially was just not there. And so I, I think that's the, 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 the biggest standout for me in terms of international media coverage. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, I mean, in, in some way, was just world busy with Corona and everything? Or for people, the conflict didn't have much relevance or much interest? Oh, they just, you know, thought that Russia is going to handle everything. For them, it was a, a, a case solved. I mean, I think it's a confluence of a lot of things. Of course, definitely the being pandemic and U.S. election time, that takes up so much of the bandwidth already. And then, you know, journalism and the media sphere, journalism just based being, frankly, a dying industry where every major outlet, local outlets have been shuttering for the last 20 years and major outlets have, have except for a handful, have shed staff and shed funding and have hugely contracted in the number of employees they have and the amount of space they have to, to write on different topics. And then yeah, the, the fact that this is, it, it's occurring, I mean, it's on the edge of Europe and it's a hot war and a very destructive war that is happening not far from basically on the borders of the European continent. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't have that big selling point of, let's say Russia's involved. Because I mean, I, I saw in uh, about in the middle of the war, uh, someone did an analysis uh, of New York Times coverage of the 2008 Russia-Georgia war and then this war and just searching for keywords in the New York Times. I think in 2008 they searched for Assetia and then this time they searched for Karabakh and it was literally 20 times more coverage in of the 2008 war than this one. Despite this one, you know, lasting much longer and being much, much more destructive. Uh, I was shocked to see that it was that much of a disparity, literally 20 times. But yeah, so there's no big sexy news angle to it that you could say, oh, this is some Russian grand plan because everyone loves the Russian evil mastermind story. Um, but it, So it, it's the, the, the combination of, yeah, loss of, um, let's say three factors. Let's say uh, the contraction of the media industry, the, the, the COVID pandemic and US election, the loss of bandwidth there, and then the, the lack of any just immediate sort of sexy geopolitical angle you can focus on this mm-hmm. and while being here and seeing or reading all those articles from journalists who have been on the ground and who have not been on the ground like in the case of washington post um how would you say like are the stories representing the reality in some way how would you describe characterize the the coverage of the war i mean i think a lot of it it got better uh, definitely around for the, the the last let's say four weeks of the war i think it was definitely much better but early on, uh, especially, I think there was a lot of either simplistic stuff or false equivalency stuff. And the, the, the thing that was most glaring to me in the first two weeks was, you know, when there was the strike on Ganja and then this suddenly made headlines. And that was the headline event that was reported everywhere. And just two, con- two weeks of concerted, constant, indiscriminate shelling of Stepanakert and every other town in Karabakh was mentioned either in passing in that piece and hadn't been brought up either and this idea and I, I there was this idea that oh now this is some massive escalation because this is a city outside the conflict zone as if you know Stepanakur being well behind the front lines is just you know oh that's just of course that they're going to 
that's fine. That's not a newsworthy thing if there's indiscriminate shelling on this just civilian location, but this other one, that's a much bigger news. And I mean, there's a lot of, so that was a big issue earlier on. And then, you know, I saw a lot of, even with bigger news outlets, I saw a lot of either failure to get certain, to get certain facts and figures right, or failure to contextualize properly in terms of, uh, like I was reading that there's a New York Times report that came out the other day that was reported half from Karabakh, uh, from the Armenian side, half from the Azerbaijani side. And most of the report was fine, but it opens with, uh, it's saying you know, Fizuli, a town of 30,000, that was once 30,000 people. And I knew that was too high. And I looked up the, the, night, the last Soviet census, 1989, which is always the, the go-to basis for the numbers on these things. And Fizuli was 17,000 people. So now, I don't know where they got 30,000 from. Maybe that was the Azerbaijani government figure and they didn't check it. But they, I also sent it straight to them and got the response back from the corrections. They never, they haven't corrected it. And they also said, oh, there's 800,000 Azerbaijani refugees, or IDPs from Karbakh and the seven surrounding regions. And the real number of that is more like 450,000, according to Human Rights Watch and the extensive report that they put out at the end of the conflict in, in late 1994. And maybe you get up to, you get approach 800,000 people if you include the Armenia, the Azeris that were expelled from Armenia, but that's a different story as well. And so this number is just flat out incorrect and that's in the story as well. And then there was a lo also a lot of reporting that failed to differentiate between Karabakh proper, the former Karabakh Atomos Oblast, and then the seven surrounding Azerbaijani-occupied regions of, you know, Agdam, Fazuli, Jibrail, Zangilan, Kubadli, Lachin, Kelbajar, which are, you know, those are a completely different set of issues from the Karabakh Autonomous Oblast, which was the compact ethnic Armenian point of settlement. And this is, the, if you get that wrong, then you've missed the, the fundamental basis of the whole conflict. And unfortunately, that was pretty widespread. Mm -hmm. um, there were many videos appearing during the war. I think this war has been unprecedented in terms of the use of Telegram as a communication tool and as a tool to show or to boast of, of the crimes or of the, of the success. Um, and the video showing the mistreatment, torture, mutilation and execution of the Armenian soldiers and POVs by the Azerbaijani army and in occasional cases also vice versa. Um, as a journalist, you have to watch all those videos to report on them. How do you manage the emotional side of it? What do you do to the point when it becomes too overwhelming? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I would love to know the answer to that. What should you do to, to manage it? Because I found it quite difficult uh, because, you know, I watched, I covered Syria for years or followed it analytically, you know, going back to 2012, 2013. I, well, I already since then followed it very closely. And so, you know, I've seen the all sorts of ISIS videos and everything. So I've seen stuff like this before too, but then to see, I mean, ISIS doing, literally ISIS doing it is one thing, where it's a, an extremist, radical, Islamist, terrorist militia doing it is one thing. And then the armed forces of a, a state actor is something else to watch the the beheading videos that, that come out for the Azerbaijani soldiers, the, the two different ones of Azerbaijani soldiers beheading live cap live elderly civilian captives so yeah those are really hard to watch um i don't know how to really deal with it um just i i decided to stop watching these and i don't um yeah i'm not really sure what to tell people other than uh, be prepared or just know what you're getting into if you want to do that and i don't recommend it that is just too much to digest yeah 
Um, but the, the families of those people, like of the soldiers, had to watch every single video to make sure that their sons or, or brothers are not. So, um, yeah, this war has been unprecedented in many ways. And you have mentioned about the false equivalency. And oftentimes when we mention that there has been this these videos of mutilation and execution, we see as a response from the Azerbaijani side, hey, but there are also videos from, from your side. And we acknowledge that and we, of course, we condemn that. But as a foreign journalist, as someone who has no interest whatsoever in, in both countries or um, or a bias, or maybe you do in some way, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can you tell me, is it possible to actually differentiate between a, um, a, a set of crimes that has a specific ideology or a systemicity, a systemic ground behind them, or videos of, of crimes where there is a mostly individually perpetrated war crimes? Yeah, I mean, I just think that there is a much larger basis for this this sort of stuff in Azerbaijan in terms of, you know, it's obvious, it's almost, uh, it, it's one of these these things that I, obviously everyone in this region is aware of it, but I think a lot of people are not. But of course, the Ramil Safarov case where this was a guy who was the, the, the infamous Azerbaijani soldier who in Hungary in 2004 at the NATO training exercise um, snuck into the Armenian where the Armenian officer was sleeping in the middle of the night and hacked him to death with the axe and then was in prison for life in Hungary. Azerbaijan, uh, Azerbaijan agitated to get him out for years. In 2012, they finally succeeded on the, gr- on the, the, the grounds that they would imprison him for life and hold, uphold his sentence in Azerbaijan. And instead, he, he came back and, of course, was hailed as a hero and given back pay and apartment and promotion, and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, say what you will. Yeah, that the, the, the Azerbaijani government has since stopped talking about him. Yeah, but okay, the example is there that if you uh, if you brutally murder a, a defenseless Armenian, uh, then you you will be not only not only is it acceptable, but it's commendable. It will be, you will be rewarded for it. And uh, I simply don't see the equivalent of that anywhere on the Armenian side. I mean, what can you say? You can point at some. The the, the, fault, the the equivalency things that the Azeris like to bring up include, you know, Asala stuff or um, Solomon Terlirian, you know, the guy who beheaded Enver Pasha, which is a bit, they're killed Enver Pasha, which is a bit different, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, I think then the, 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 the depth of the hatred, I mean, obviously people here do not like, by and large, do not like Azeris, do not like Turks, but um, it's the, it's a, a, a different level, I think. It's, it's a, it's a di- much different uh, circumstance here where, especially especially towards Turkey, sort of this historical resentment for the genocide. And in reality, you know, plenty of Armenians visit uh, Turkey and live and work in Istanbul, etc. But for Azerbaijan, I really think, you know, this it's this inculcated state ideology of anti-Armenianism and this external enemy. And I mean, it's this is the classic sort of model that's used by repressive regimes to authoritarian dictatorships to justify their rule all over the place and of course it was used here as well too in terms of the fact of oh we're not we can't risk internal political turmoil because well we have the external enemy to focus on same thing that was used by arab regimes for literally 50 years before the arab spring you know the emergency laws because oh we're at war with israel and azerbaijan the same thing too is the the rally around the the flag effect which, as we saw, was extremely effective in this war. I mean, Azerbaijani civil society just fell in line. The Azerbaijani opposition was all completely in support of everything that Ilham Aliyev was ordering and doing. And, and Azerbaijan, yeah, this, this narrative of just 
really hatred and dehumanization towards Armenians, I think, is just about at a, a really incredible level. Do you think it's justified? Do you think those people can actually, if we take out those haters in, from two societies, it's going to be possible to coexist together? I mean, we are so far away from that that I can't imagine how that happens in any reasonable time frame. I mean, essentially, now we're at the point where yeah, the, the dynamics of the conflict have basically flipped from what they were for the last 25 years, where, of course, at the end of the first war, Armenia was the satisfied victor and the Azeris were the aggrieved, um, the aggrieved, defeated nation. And so resentment there smoldered. And especially, you know, of course, it's understandable in the 500,000 people that were expelled from the regions in, from Karabakh and from the regions around Karabakh. Um, but now we, we see it on the other hand where it's flipped around. And now, I mean, before it, there would have been more onus on the Armenian side, I think, to you know, make nice for this or to try and come to concessions, which there was attempts in the, the past, especially the late 90s and early 2000s that unfortunately came to naught. But now it's flipped and now the Azeris are the ones who are in the, the position where, you know, they've, their grievances have almost have effectively, all their, their legitimate grievances, I, as far as I'm concerned, have basically been solved. You know, they always said, we want, we need people to be able to go back home. We need the regions back. Okay, now you have those seven regions that, those are those are in your hands again. You even have a bunch of Karabakh. You have Shusha, which was always your biggest sticking point in the final status of Karabakh. The remaining areas, I mean, we're talking about maybe 10,000 10, areas that once lived in that area, which is, you know, drop in the bucket compared to the five, to 500,000. So now we're at the state where we're at the point where in order for there to be something to move forward towards coexistence, there needs to be a lot of conciliatory moves by the Azeri side, a lot of magnanimity shown and um, nuance and respect for the defeated for, for the the Armenian side and of course it's the exact opposite of what we're seeing and what we've seen from the Azerbaijani government for 15 years now and there's no reason to think that it will stop so I don't think um, yeah it's really nice to, if you, to talk about oh I hope we can live in peace one day and like we need to start building bridges towards it and as like some civil society member but the reality is the people in, in power who can affect this and the and the the winner of the war in the Azerbaijani government are have shown no real interest in this at all. So uh, just going by the fact, just going by the reality is that I think deep down everyone who is saying this uh, that oh, we can we can peacefully coexist and we need to start working towards that is aware of this reality. You know that this is something that the people at the very top seem uninterested in. Unfortunately, and that's been one of the obstacles um, of trying to, to uh, like on the way to have a peaceful dialogue for the last 30 years. Um, you have written an article about the clashes in, in July that happened in the northeast border of, of Armenia for foreign policy. And you have mentioned that those clashes, those skirmishes have, have been very different for three different reasons, because they took, they, they, they took place out of Nagorno-Karabakh, because you know a lot of the a, a famous general, general died. Um, do you think that those skirmishes were a signal of a full-scale war, um, that the Armenian government somehow didn't, didn't actually notice or just passed by? Um, I don't think those were particularly indicative of anything. I mean, talking to people who are very well involved, um, I mean, I really like the... Uh, the quote that Alessia Vartanian for International Crisis Group gave me for that piece saying that if anyone was planning these clashes, you know, they did a really bad job because they really seemed to be 
you know, haphazard, the result of um, miscommunications, as best we could tell is what happened is something like, oh, the Azeri, there was an Azeri truck moving towards Armenian positions, or the Armenians thought it was moving towards their positions, and then uh, it was fired upon, and then things just sort of escalated a bit from there. But certainly that's not an, that's certainly not an area where either side wants conflict with, of, of course, the, of course, there's no dispute that the borders there are not exactly dis, they're not fully demarcated, but they're not very disputed either. This is that's the international recognized boundary, so there's no incentive for either side really there. And then, of course, on the Armenian side, you have the main north south highway in Armenia going to Georgia, and then the Azerbaijani side, you have the critical pipeline infrastructure right there too. So neither side really wants wanted that in particular. So I don't think those clashes per se were planned or part of this or intended as the starting point for this, but in, in fact, they basically did end up serving as the, the starting point for the buildup in that the weeks that followed, uh, Turkey immediately announced that they were going to hold, that they immediately announced and then held the military exercises with uh, Azerbaijan. And then as, as we know, they left behind quite a bit of equipment and uh, also officers that, that helped coordinate the, the campaign over the last few months. And basically, this kicked off the buildup on the Azerbaijani side too, where they were they began the coordination. Then I think this was really where they began to to think about launching the campaign was just after that. And uh, I think yeah, that's the point where the, the Turks encouraged, began to really encourage them as well too, and really came down on their side um, forcefully for the first time ever in this conflict, it, much more so than the previous you know, diplomatic support and uh, lower level ties that they always had. And then, yeah, so in, in, in summary, I think that the clashes in July were not planned, but then they became the, the launching point. The, they became the, the point where um, everything that happened on, starting on September 27th, the planning for it started just after that. Yeah, and I, I mean, there, as far as I, I don't think there was any Bayraktar usage or anything in the, the July clashes. And I mean, the July clashes weren't particularly different from any other sort of skirmishes except for where they took place really um, in terms of you know the the losses on either side were fairly even um, maybe I think slightly favoring the Armenian side on this on, the, on those clashes and uh, no real territory changed hands and you know, the, the, there was no real indication from that that Azerbaijan was this going to be able to have built this force that was going to be able to really tear through uh, Armenian defenses, as we saw later. So, the, yeah, I don't think there was a huge, it really was a huge precursor in itself. Mm -hmm. um, international community has been quite silent since the beginning of the war, although there has been a lot of proof of the existence of uh, Turkish-backed Assyrian mercenaries, of the violation of the international humanitarian law, war crimes, um, use of cluster munitions, and all the different kinds of like crossing of these red lines that happen. Why do you think, considering all of that, all the organizations, including the UN, OSCE, the, the Council of Europe, the, the EU, um, and the countries in general, have been so silent on the, um, on the war and all the like, violations of, of international laws that happened over the course of it? I mean, I, f I frankly think that most of it is because that this, especially in the first month of the conflict, this was taking the, the conflict was taking place not only in within the de jure recognized territory of Azerbaijan, but in the you know the seven regions surrounding it, which is you know even Karabakh itself is 
I mean, a lot. Unfortunately, a lot of the the the, the nuance is not going to be, and the understanding is not going to be present in a lot of international organize, a lot of international actors to understand. You know, the, to go beyond the fact that okay, it's within the de jure borders, but these are Soviet era borders, and Karabakh itself is never under independent Azerbaijan's control, etc. But I mean, the to have it happening in Armenian populated areas is one thing, and I think this is especially true with regards to. Russia's response in terms of, you know, to have it happening in the Armenian populated areas is one thing, but um, to have all the conflict, all the combat happening in Jibril and Fizuli that are these deserted wastelands that um, there's frankly no, there was never any real justification for Armenia holding them, that I I don't think that there was much sympathy for that um, on the, 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 like the Russian side, especially as very well connected people in Moscow told me is that, you know, this is this, the Armenians knew this is that they took those areas by their fort, by the strength of their own arms. And if they wanted, they, they, they could have given them back, but they decided they wanted to hold them. That's fine. But then that's the deal. It's like, you, we're not going to help you hold Jabrail. You know, you have to do that yourself. If that's, if you've decided that that's so crucial that you have to have that, then, then that's it. And for the, the rest of, um, I mean, for the international community, I was actually pretty su- Pretty surprised in terms of the the amount of uh, a program I saw directed towards the EU in general, in in, in particular the EU um, as an institution, because the, the EU is not an institution that responds to things like this. I mean, it's in, it is institutionally incapable of that because it requires consensus from all twenty seven members, and even one is enough to stop it. I mean, as we saw with even putting sanctions on Belarus, you know, that's one unrelated. Issue basically, Cyprus can just block that, and so the EU was never going to do anything, um, nor could it have, nor should people have expected it to, really, uh, to put like some comprehensive sanctions on Azerbaijan or whatnot. Um, obviously, the US was in its own business, has had its own problems, and then, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I, I definitely think that there should be some form of punishment towards Azerbaijan later on here. Um, yeah, especially given that the once the the fighting moved into the ethnic Armenian areas and we started getting like these horrific war crimes being committed, but um, in general, I mean, the, yeah, this is part. Of the, this is sort of part of the broader issue on the Armenian side, I think, and this is this is another thing that morphed over time. Um, going back to our pre- earlier conversation too, and that you know when people when the the, the Karabakh Armenian forces in 1993 conquered all these seven surrounding areas. Um, that was always with the understanding that, you know, we're going to give these back in some sort of deal, in some sort of peace deal. And, you know, these were not part of the homeland. These places where no Armenians actually lived and still today almost no one lived. Um, but then attitudes over that hardened over time. And we ended up, you know, I read a really good, reread a really good piece from two years ago, uh, just the other day saying that, you know, in 2004, two-thirds of Armenians were prepared to give up those territories, part of our, our, all of those seven occupied territories in, in exchange for a deal. And then by 2018, the number had dropped to 8%. And so and the, the, you saw this in the way that Karbak itself was conceptualized in terms of uh, those went from being the, the seven occupied regions, you know, and, and then they went to the security belt and then the buffer zone and then Oh, the, the liberated areas, and then they were just incorporated fully into Artsakh, and they, the narrative morphed in terms of these are, okay, this is the buffer zone, in term, in, in, back into these are part of the homeland and not one inch back, and no one was prepared to give them up to. And so I think, I mean, at a certain level, I do think that there was this lack of um, 
willingness, especially especially in terms of the, the one actor that mattered the most, which is Russia, in terms of the Russians were never going to come in there and fight for Armenia's right to hold Jibrail and Fazuli. Flat out. That's, and I don't think they ever promised that they would. And I think they made the, the Armenians very aware of this, at least the leadership. And so when, when, and that, and I think that that's reflective of other people's attitudes towards this as well, as the fact is that, you know, this is, that the issue itself was not so black and white as, or it, as it would have been if it was just, our, just Karabakh itself. It wasn't, but it wasn't Karabakh itself. It was also the seven regions. Yeah, but the, the community, international community has, I think that the problem is that they do not understand why those seven regions have been so important because the, the, the insurance of having this, the status for Nagorno-Karabakh and having the peace and um, it has been so vague, like nothing substantial has been proposed for, for many, many years. And talking about the OIC, um, we have seen that the coaches have visited Baku and Yerevan and have received quite a cold um, welcome in Baku and more diplomatic, softer welcome, as, as always, um, in Yerevan. So would you say that there is a, still a kind of role for OIC in the further, further regulation of the, um, of the conflict? I, I'm not sure if, I, if we should call it a conflict anymore. I mean, maybe, again, eventually, but frankly, no, not really. But because, you know, essentially now this, the only actor that really matters is Russia. I mean, the OSC, the, the Minsk group hadn't done anything for, there had, I mean, there, there just frankly had not been concerted um, efforts by a lot of sides to, in negotiations for a long time. I mean, essentially the entire Serge Sargsyan presidency, there was, Serge's policy was sit on it, was buy time and wait it out. And so it's never made any attempts to do that. And I don't think that Ilham Aliyev was particularly interested either. Um, I think that, you know, after Haydar Aliyev passed away in, in 2003, that chances fell significantly. But certainly around like the late two, late 2000s, that's when things really just began to get set in, um, set in their way. And the, I mean, the, the, basically a lot of foreign sides spent a lot of political capital on this at various points. I mean... The U.S. did, of course, especially in early 2001 with the Key West talks, and then that was still pre-9-11, you know, and after that it was global war on terror, and that's been the, the mass preoccupation, and, you know, they spent time on, and then that, that was sort of like, it, there was that was a pretty big investment of political attention and capital by the U.S. on a small region far away that, that frankly doesn't have much to do with it. And the, for the, the rest of the OSCE too, I mean, there was like some, some serious efforts in the 90s and the early 2000s to really get things done. But then aside from that, you know, like these countries had largely, uh, Russia obviously had no interest in, Russia was fine with the status quo, so only went to both sides. Um, and the, the other OSCE Minsk group chairs uh, both have other priorities as well, had already put in a bunch of time. And then also without that U.S. political capital, it's hard to see how they would have gotten much done themselves either. I mean, even the lead up to this. And now, I mean, the Minsk group is basically, I, I'm sure it'll have some nominal role in whatever status negotiations are going to come forward. But even then, it's way too early to talk about any of that because uh, Aliyev just says, no, he says, status you're not going to get any status. No, Lupashinya, what happened? And so obviously this is not something that's uh, on the table for them. And then, I mean, not only did Aliyev say straight up to the, the Minsk group when they, they came there that I didn't invite you, I don't know why you're here, but you decided to show up. But then when they came here too, Arya Karatunya refused to meet them. He said, well, what's the point? 
And so both sides are, and I'm sure, yeah, in the Yerevan, okay, but obviously the government here is a bit bigger problems than the figuring out the status of the Minsk group. And whoever, in, in the event that, the, you know, they're replaced by these 17 parties or whatever, which I don't think they will be, but um, whoever, whatever comes next is not going to be particularly interested in the Minsk group either. So the Minsk group is basically, you know, it's a nominal body that I'm sure will attach his name to whatever comes next when that, if and when it does. But uh, yeah, I think the Minsk group already for so many years was a very marginal player and now it's essentially done. Regarding the... Um the human rights organizations and their reports that Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have done a couple of reports during the war. Um, and all those reports have been uh, contested a lot. They have been labeled as controversial, incomplete, unfair, or some some way biased. I mean, I don't want to go into deep into the content of the reports, but would you say that the MSA has been really overreacting or there has certainly been a certain kind of bias in favor of Azerbaijan in those reports? I mean, yeah, I don't know if bias or I don't, I don't particularly think Amnesty and International is a or Human Rights Watch are biased organizations, but um, yeah, I definitely those reports absolutely left a lot to be desired. And I mean, they did they had the one of the researchers uh, Amnesty did a good thread about it afterwards, explaining what happened, saying you know this is not the defendant meant to be the definitive report. We wanted to put this out specifically because those Azerbaijani videos of executions came out, which was a good explainer too, but doesn't change the fact that the report itself doesn't say that. And the report, if you just read, you know, the summary of the report itself, it just says there was, there's been two execute, three executions total that we've confirmed, um, two by Azerbaijan, one by Armenia, and then all these other war crimes. And the Armenians have actually done more of them. And I mean, I th and that just is, I, okay, you have to verify more, but that, picture I think we all know is not true that the Armenians have done more or worse which is not specific even specifically the report doesn't say that but the report implies that and it very clearly reads as that and it's already been waved around by a bunch of his area officials to see see look well the, the Armenians are are worse than us look at this see the, the amnesty said the Armenians are worse and you know have a, to have a clarifying thread by one of the researchers is nice but it does doesn't uh it, it that's going to be seen by a lot less people than if that was an explanatory note in the report itself, which left a lot to be desired. And so, yeah, I am not particularly, yeah, I don't think those reports have much value to offer. If And I don't understand why the point uh, was of putting it out there saying, okay, the, the, the saying what this, okay, we wanted to put this out there because we'd seen this, these horrific Azeri videos. But then it's also incomplete. But then it also the the, conclu the conclusion that it gives make it to make it sound to everyone who's not following this internal sort of drama closely make it sound to everyone else who's reading the report that actually oh actually look the Armenian side is much worse. And so yeah, I don't know what they were thinking with that. Um, I think it was very poorly thought out. And uh, the as Azerbaijan the, the Human Rights Watch one were better still. But I mean there was also problems with that saying like. It said the the Armenian side committed war crimes, and then it said the Azerbaijani side apparently committed war crimes. And the picture on the front of the the uh, the the one of the Azerbaijanis committing war crimes was just like an empty street hit by a missile. And then the picture in the front of the Armenian the Armenian committing war crimes one was like a crying child. So obviously a very different like emotional touchstone there too. It makes it makes it look much worse than that. So I think that they were pretty. Um, either tone deaf or just sort of oblivious or 
Yeah, just fairly, frankly, fairly poorly planned out, really. Yeah, I think that there was a lot that could have been done a lot better with those. And yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm, as me myself, I was not pleased with them. Okay. And going back to the journalistic aspect of your work, do you think that as a foreign journalist, you have been assisted um, enough in Armenia by the authorities? You were stuck on the border. You couldn't get into Artsakh at some point, I remember. Yeah, I mean, I think broadly speaking, there weren't any restrictions that were um, that, that were beyond the pale. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of confusion in the process. And then like every day, the regulations were sort of changing or a lot of things were being done on the fly. And there was a lot of confusion. And yeah, the first time I tried to get into Artsakh, uh, we were unable to, but that was also, I mean, that that, that day, the bridge uh, near Lachin had been hit by the Israeli, uh, had been hit by an Azerbaijani missile during the day, that day. And then the next two days, I mean, as a, uh, Sapanakar was being shelled so heavily that I don't think it's, it was complete, I don't think it was really um, unjustifiable that they, they didn't want people going in there then. And then being in Karabakh itself too, I mean, you really didn't have much access frankly, in terms of you could go around in Stepanakert and you could go to Shushi and you could go to Martskert and Martuni sometimes. And that was about it. And obviously the authorities sort of were inter more interested in you writing just sort of the stories about how people are in the shelters and it's they're sad and it's tragic and not that much else. But then at the same time, you know, so we couldn't get to, close to the, the real action in the front line in the south. Some people managed to with the, the, the aid of very um, clever fixers. But broadly, you could not. But then at the same time, too, you know, this was uh, the sort of war where for, for the entire time, the Azeris had full control of the skies and drones were... Tar it wasn't just the sort of war where you were going, you can embed in a unit, okay, there's small arm and artillery fire. And if you get closer to the front lines, you know the risks and etc. But this was thing where, you know, vehicles and military and military looking vehicles are being struck um, by guided munitions all across Karabakh the whole time so it was legitimately a really big risk to send people close to it would have been a really big risk to send people anywhere closer to the actual front lines of the fighting so i can't I, have, i do have a hard time faulting the authorities on coming on not letting people do that and so i i mean i think broadly overall i i maybe i would have maybe it could have been nicer to have a little bit more access into the the actual Uh, the actual crucial areas of the fighting in the south but i don't think it was unreasonable that there were the restrictions that there were in place yeah there were some armenian journalists that managed to get really interesting access and especially certain ones like uh bars media i don't know how they were they were given some sort of really special access clearly i know some other armenian journalists who were able to like embed with units and as a foreign journalist that was not possible and actually now there's preferential treatment being given to russian journalists where in Stepanakert, the, the, the Artsakh authorities are organizing special tours for only Russian journalists and not allowing foreign journalists on them. So now that's a different story. But um, yeah, overall, I don't think the restrictions were super uh, unreasonable during the war. Mm -hmm. And um, the final question is, what are the three key developments or actors that would you as a foreign journalist would keep your eye on in 2021? about the war and, and the region in general. I um, haven't had that much time to look to the future, but I guess just, yeah, how well will the ceasefire hold? Of course, um, because there's been lots of violations. I was in a village last week in Tokovar village where there was, it was being violated at that moment. 
And will the Russians manage to put a real end to this? Or will this be like sort of the new normal with sniping and skirmishes across the front line despite the Russian presence? Because there, there aren't that many... The, the, the Russian, there aren't enough Russians to be everywhere. There's quite a few Russians, but they're not everywhere. And not in these areas where the, the, the violations have happened. So will the Russians put a real end to that? And then going forward, I mean... Well, the, the political scene in Yerevan, of course, what is going to happen exactly here? Um, when when will Pashinyan, because I think he, I, he must realize he has to call snap elections at some point. When will that happen? And then what exactly will the outcome of that be? Um, and then let's say what happens in Azerbaijan, because the this was always the issue that held everything together there. That was the the gave the, the government the government uses carte blanche to do whatever they wanted and now okay you, you went you got back Karabakh and you can't really get back the rest of it because the Russians are there and they're not just going to leave um, and now like the, of course the wartime is over and so the wartime solidarity is going to start to fade and, and it already has in terms of you know when the Aliyah when the government announced there that the compensation for the families of deceased soldiers, Azerbaijani soldiers, was going to be 300, one-time payment of 300 manats, about $170. Uh, Azerbaijani social media was very upset about that. And now there's other reports that, you know, the soldiers are, are not getting uh, adequate treatment and that they're not getting adequate food and payment um, afterwards. And so people are going to be upset about that. And then, of course, as this reconstruction stuff starts to come in, it's going to cost a lot of money on an Azerbaijani state budget that has shrunk massively in the last few years and is not going to go back up because it's an oil-based oil-based economy. And so a bigger, a, a huge slice of this decreased pie is going to go towards these prestige projects of building whatever in Shushi and this the big highway going up from Fazuli up to there. And then I'm sure they're going to build a few little Potemkin village style settlements and in, um, in these uh, these liberated areas, quote unquote, that are going to cost a lot of money and that frankly, I don't think many people are going to move back to in the, these areas. I mean, these areas that were largely rural, people who have been living on the outskirts of Baku for 25 years, largely are not going to go back and become, and especially people who've grown up there now, are not going to go from being living in Baku to being farmers uh, 400 kilometers away. And so there's, I think that's going to be very interesting to watch inside Azerbaijan. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. Um, and we'll hope to see you in Armenia, I mean, in future, and hopefully to, to read more your coverage of the region. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I'm not planning to leave the Caucasus, broadly speaking, anytime in the next few years. Planning to still be based here. So I'm sure I'll be, there'll be plenty of more coverage of Carval coming from you.